Today's broadcast originally aired on June 7, 2023. These Canadian wildfires are truly unprecedented, and we cannot ignore that climate change continues to make these disasters worse. Oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can ignore them. That's what we always do. We've been doing that for years now. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, thanks. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Hey there. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallatin, Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. Boy, a whole bunch of those affiliates are probably having really bad weather outside today. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing planet earth i'm brad friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker and all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com and yes oddly enough uh it's not you know california and oregon who are in the worst shape uh when it comes to air quality, air quality wise today yeah. uh welcome to the Bradcast. that delightful voice is desi doyne she's here with us as ever hello desiree hello uh, you know, with all the insanity going on right now in this nation, uh, a number of topics that we have long covered on this show and at bradblog.com have, well, at least some of them have sort of been necessarily, if unhappily, pushed to the side, pushed into the background more than I wish they had been. We're going to spend some time shortly on one of those issues, and we will be joined to do it by the former governor of Alabama, Don Siegelman, momentarily. But first, uh, yeah, as we've been mentioning, the <laughs> uh, smoke from Canadian wildfires poured into the U.S. East Coast and Midwest on Wednesday, covering the capitals of both nations in an unhealthy haze according to AP, holding up flights at major airports, prompting people to fish out pandemic-era face masks. Fish them out? I'm still using them. What are you talking about? Anyway, uh, yeah, the effects of climate change kind of suck, don't they? Totally. Actually, uh, they affect millions of people here in North America. So, uh, you know, sorry that so many have to finally notice it. 
While Canadian officials asked other countries for help fighting more than 400 blazes nationwide that have already displaced some 20,000 people, air quality with uh, what the U.S. rates as hazardous levels of pollution has extended now into central New York. Oh, no, not New York. I guess it's time to cover it then (laughs) now that it's affecting New Yorkers. Too cynical? Too snarky? Massive tongues of unhealthy air extended as far as Virginia and Indiana, affecting millions of people, notes AP. Quote, I can taste the air, said Dr. Ken Strumpf in a Facebook post from Syracuse, New York, which was enveloped in an amber pall. The smoke, he later said by phone, even made him a bit dizzy. In Baltimore, where officials warned residents to stay indoors when possible, Debbie Funk sported a blue surgical mask as she and husband Jack Hughes took their daily walk around Fort McHenry. Said Funk, quote, I walked outside this morning and it was like a waft of smoke. She said the couple had considered skipping the walk but wanted some exercise. The two planned, however, to stay inside later on Wednesday. Probably a good idea. Definitely. It was at least the third day of hazy skies across a wide stretch of the nation. Smoke blanketed the landscape from the Ohio Valley to as far south as the Carolinas on Monday, according to NBC. Air quality advisories were in effect Monday in southeastern Minnesota. Parts of the this was on Monday in southeastern Minnesota and parts of the upper peninsula of Michigan, as well as in more than 60 counties in Wisconsin. By By late Tuesday, New York City public schools said that all of its schools would cancel all outdoor activities because of the air quality alert. And uh, some 414 fires were burning in Canada on Tuesday evening, including 239 that are considered to be out of control. That, according to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center, with more than 6.7 million acres already burned this year, say federal officials. Canadian officials say this is shaping up to be the nation's worst wildfire season ever. It started early on drier than usual ground and accelerated very quickly, exhausting firefighting resources across the country, according to fire and environmental officials. And newsflash, checking the calendar, it's just early June. Yeah. At this point. Hasn't even hit peak fire Uh, season yet. Uh, Des, you have been reporting on the uh, just extraordinary number of fires that sprung up last month, I think it was, in May, as I recall, if not earlier, in the Alberta tar sands oil region, ironically enough, up in Canada, as, as projects like that, like the tar sands oil projects, are arguably the very cause of the fires that are now, you know, choking, drilling and mining operations in those same regions. And now it seems the fires have done nothing but spread across Canada and now the smoke, at least, into the U.S. What's going on here, Des? Well, remember that really weird heat wave in the northeast and the northern states that was uh, hit last month or like Seattle Mm -hmm. hit like 91 degrees out of nowhere. So that dried out everything and that Mm -hmm. created these ideal, ideal fire Mm -hmm. uh, conditions, which is just 
horrible and sad. And yes, this is exactly what climate change looks like. That's according to meteorologist Jeff Masters at Yale, Dr. Jeff Masters. He says that, you know, while fire is a natural feature of North American ecology, dangerous fire weather days have increased in frequency and duration. Fire weather, the conditions Mm -hmm. that create these intense out-of-control fires. And of course... And I think it's important to point out, by the way, that it's not just those areas being hit with the actual fires that are paying the cost. Obviously, we're talking now about millions of people uh, across the country now yeah, paying Yeah, of the course. Cost. And that just underscores the financial costs of failure to act on climate yeah. change. Because this one smoke event in just this one week, it's caused canceled air- airline flights. Mm-hmm. It has caused the Yankees game to be canceled. Uh-oh. Um, it has closed schools and canceled school events. Um, it has caused numerous lost work hours from people having to stay inside, hospital visits. I mean, this this has an economic cost on top of the cost of, you know, all of this, uh, the forest going up in smoke yep. and putting more carbon dioxide emissions into the air, making climate change even worse. So um, Canada is suffering one of the worst starts to fire season ever recorded. Mm-hmm. And it also has just had its latest, its hottest and driest late spring on record. And it's, uh, as you mentioned earlier, It's just kind of infuriating that we have spent all of these decades uh, fighting the climate science denial industry and Republicans and, uh, you know, conservative so-called politicians across the the world that have been lying about climate change and stopping action from actually occurring to make it better at all. And the media has also participated in this in failing to inform the public about this, you know, these, these corporations that are basically poisoning us for profit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I feel sort of as I'm sort of listening to you and me, I I, I feel a certain bitterness in the air today, if not smoke. You know, it's it's maddening. I mean, this is exactly the things that we have been warning about for so many years on our Green News Report and on Bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast. And uh, but, you know, you you point out that, oh, there's going to be a cost uh, planes are, are canceled. The Yankees game is, yeah. is canceled. Maybe that is what it is going to take before people realize, yeah, this is a problem. Maybe we should do something about it. One would hope. Now, just to give you a sense of, of the perspective on this. So healthy levels of air quality are considered 50, the number 50 yep. and below. New York City is pushing 400 this week. Mm. That is among the worst air quality in the world. So it's right up there with, you know, India and China, their worst air quality days. And, you know, listen, and they have a lot of them. Yes, they do. And it's uh, so it maybe it will help to focus the mind of people to take action on climate change. And I do as, p- as our climate becomes more like a third world nation. Yeah. OK, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, maybe. But uh, it's really important that if you can smell smoke, you are being affected by the smoke. Mm. That smoke doesn't have to be visible to harm your lungs so you need to wear a high quality mask like ah. an N95 um, you know go dig that one out if you're not if you yeah. still don't have it um, you need to know that wildfire smoke contains these super tiny particles that are known as mm-hmm. PM 2.5 they're not really visible they are so tiny they can enter the lungs and bloodstream and lodge there where they cause uh, lung and heart diseases cancers strokes heart attacks um, and also you should know that wildfire smoke tends to be more toxic 
toxic than other sources of particulate pollution. Mm. You know, like soot from cars does not contain the stuff that wildfire smoke contains. Wildfires basically burn everything in their path. So that can include, you know, household chemicals and batteries mm, and plastic. Yeah. So you do not want to breathe in the smoke. And particulate pollution increases the risk of asthma, lung cancer, other chronic lung diseases, particularly in groups like older people, pregnant people, infants and children. Increases of COVID-19 and influenza have also been linked to wildfire smoke. Portable air purifiers, however, can be highly effective, according to the EPA, to reduce indoor particle con uh, concentrations as much as 85 percent. Experts say choose air purifiers that have high efficiency particulate air, that's HEPA, filters and a clean air delivery rate, a metric of how effective they are at removing pollutants of at least two thirds the size of the room that they are intended for. So uh, a clean air delivery rate of at least two thirds of the size of the room you are using one of those filters in. Because we don't know how long this uh, smoke is actually going to hang around. Uh, you know, these fires ain't going anywhere up no. in Canada. So this could be uh, around for a while. It is hoped that rain uh, may take down the smoke a bit in coming days. But, um, yep, I'm sure, I'm sure all the right-wingers who are so furious about having to wear masks are going to be delighted now. <laughs> oh, well, sorry. Tried to warn you. Uh, okay, uh, in, in some uh, better news very quickly here, some better environmental news today, even if it's not better for those who think the federal government should have less money to spend on protecting the American people from these sorts of things, you know, keeping them safe and healthy. Jackson, Mississippi has received a long overdue federal lifeline in its water crisis this week with the EPA promising $115 million to support critical water infrastructure upgrades in Mississippi's capital city. It's the first part of funding from a $600 million congressional appropriation for Jackson's water system, championed by President Biden as part of the 2023 federal budget. The funds which are coming from the, uh, uh, from the budget money set aside for infrastructure, come to a city plagued by water infrastructure issues for years that have left it at times without reliable drinking water. In October, the EPA opened an investigation into whether Mississippi state officials discriminated against black residents in the state by declining to fund improvements to the state's water supply, particularly in Jackson, the state's capital, with a large black population. The uh, Jackson mayor, uh, Chukwe Antar Lumumba, said these funds will help provide relief to Jackson residents this aid helps to restore dignity to our city. Jackson uh, uh, Vice uh, President Biden noted in a statement on Tuesday, quote, last summer, Jackson's water system reached a crisis point when a major flood. Yes, more climate change woes yep. for those not keeping track at home. Uh, reached a crisis point when a major flood aggravated longstanding problems in the water system and left tens of thousands of people without any running water for days on end. All Americans deserve access to clean, safe drinking water, he said. That's why I directed my administration to make sure the people of Jackson have the resources they need and deserve. Yes, what? Even in a red state. Go figure.
Uh, he's referring to last August when the uh, uh, Mississippi and, and the president declared states of emergency to, due to uh, drinking water crisis in Jackson affecting a, its population of about 180,000 people. Uh, FEMA was ordered in to help distribute water at the time. Uh, Congressman Benny Thompson, a Democrat of Mississippi, said this is an incredible mine, milestone towards ensuring access to safe drinking water for the Jackson, Mississippi community. And I would add, finally. Yes. Uh, one more uh, here before we get to a break. And my guest, uh, news reports have been uh, sort of bubbling up all day uh, that Donald Trump could be indicted on criminal charges related to the Espionage Act in his stolen documents case as soon as Thursday. Now, we will see, uh, <laughs> because, you know, take them all with a grain of salt. We'll see what happens. But for now, we've got this coming after uh, recent weeks of reporting on the unspeakable corruption of the wildly corrupt U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas has asked for more time to file annual financial disclosures. I bet he has after investigative reporting found that he unlawfully failed to report luxury travel and real estate deals and more with Texas billionaire and Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. Justice Sam Alito also asked for an extension, though he has also done so in previous years. I guess leaking Supreme Court opinions takes up a lot of a guy's time for, you know, small tasks to, uh, you know, like being transparent to the American people about one's corruption. Both of the requests were confirmed the same day that disclosure reports filed by their court colleagues were posted on the court system's website. They were on time, but Thomas and Alito, for some reason, couldn't manage it. Nah. Uh, I guess so, you know, Clarence, I suspect, needs some more time to rethink all of a sudden this year's disclosures for some reason. Yeah, he's going to have to um, thread the needle, I guess, on how he's going to describe what he received from all of his little benefactors. This yes, year. it should be interesting. The uh, Supreme Court, of course, has been under increasing pressure from Democratic lawmakers, if not Republican ones. Uh, as well as transparency advocates to strengthen disclosure rules and adopt ethics guidelines after news reports revealed that Thomas's undisclosed real estate deals and private jet travel and, uh, well, all sorts of questions about his recusal practices or lack thereof. Thomas's 2022 filing was highly anticipated after ProPublica reported earlier this year on the justice's financial dealings with his close friend and benefactor, Harlan Crow. Instead, Thomas will have up to 90 additional days to submit his filings, which could include any amendments, by the way, or updates related to his finances from past years. Well, I'm sure he has a lot of updates for those, too. He does that all the time. We reported at Brad Blog back in 2011 uh, about how he had failed to report his wife's income as required on his disclosure forms. 
over a period of about 20 years, so he just went back and quietly amended them. We'll see what his amendments look like this year. I suspect uh, there'll be people watching a bit more closely. You think? Revised ethics rules adopted in March, however, now require the justices and all federal judges to provide a fuller public accounting of the free trips and other gifts that they accept. The changes make clear, for instance, that judges must report travel by private jet. The revised rules were also designed to clarify which gifts can be counted as personal hospitality from a close friend, exempted from disclosure, as Thomas has claimed his literally hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of travel, free luxury travel around the world on private planes, on super yachts, his annual vacations for him and his wife and his uh, grandnephew at, uh, with Crow at Crow's uh, resort in upstate New York. May not be able to go there this year. Too much smoke. Anyway, uh, yeah, he's claimed uh, he doesn't need to uh, report that. It's just personal hospitality. Nothing to see here. Just from his new best friend, the billionaire, who suddenly developed an interest in him after he was nominated for the after Supreme he Court. Became, yeah, after he's he was a sitting, real friend. He is. It's just a personal hospitality. Yeah. Anyway, so we will be keeping our eyes on that uh, during the uh, undoubtedly slow news weeks of summer that lie ahead. Uh, in the meantime, uh, speaking of corrupt judges, let's take a quick break here. We will be uh, come back and be joined by Alabama's former Democratic governor, Don Siegelman. He knows a thing or two about corrupt judges and about the awesome responsibility of being a state governor who gets to determine, frankly, who lives or dies under this nation's grotesque death penalty laws? And he is joined up uh, with a former Republican governor from Alabama uh, to talk about exactly that. That's straight ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of The Bradcast. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. With all of the madness now going on in this nation, as you may have noticed, and in this world, frankly, it has been, to say the least, difficult to stay focused on a number of critical issues that we have reported on for years, but which have sort of fallen to the back burner of late, even though really they shouldn't. One of those issues that we've covered is the ongoing outrage of the grotesque use of the death penalty at both the state and federal level, still here in where are we? 2023. 
Now, while a number of states have backed off the use of this barbaric and too often unjust practice, the issue still remains a stain on this nation as I see it. A few quick data points of note from a recent op-ed written by two seemingly unlikely authors about the death penalty, as recently published by the Washington Post. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, since 1976, nationwide, one person on death row has been exonerated for every 8.3 executions. That means we have been getting it wrong about 12% of the time. 12% of the time when getting it wrong means the government actually killing an innocent person. The center has found that wrongful convictions are overwhelmingly the product of police and prosecutorial misconduct or the presentation of knowingly false testimony. And as the authors of the op-ed note, shamefully, such misconduct most frequently involves black defendants. 87% of such cases. The writers say shamefully, I would say on that point shamefully but unsurprisingly. 27 states retain the death penalty. Of those, 14 have not con conducted an execution in 10 years. That's good, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. And the governors of five states, Arizona, California, Ohio, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, have said that they will not oversee an execution during their terms. That is good as well. Though it also means that the return of the barbaric and arguably racist penalty could be just one gubernatorial election away from returning to some of those states. In Florida, for example, a governor like Ron DeSantis has exercised his powers to make the practice of the death penalty even more barbaric and ubiquitous by allowing juries to recommend death sentences not only by unanimous verdict, but according to a bill recently signed by the presidential hopeful governor using his macho tough on crime rhetoric. Well, that bill allows juries to recommend a death sentence on a simple eight to four vote, which, of course, helps to underscore the awesome and frankly outrageous power that state governors have to ultimately decide whether a person convicted of a capital offense will live or die. The op-ed that I've been citing from the Washington Post was co-written by two former state governors, both from Alabama. Republican Governor Robert Bentley, who served from 2011 to 2017, and Democratic Governor Don Siegelman, who served from 1999 to 2003. Their piece headlined, We Oversaw Executions as Governor we regret it, begins this way, quote, Alabama has 167 people on death row, a greater number per capita than in any other state. As far as the two of us are concerned, that is at least 146 people too many. Now, I might go on to argue that that's 167 people too many, but they go on to write that, quote, as former Alabama governors, we have come over time to see the flaws in our nation's justice system and to view the state's death penalty laws in particular as legally and morally troubling. We both presided over executions while in office, but if we had known then what we know now about prosecutorial misconduct we would have exercised our constitutional authority to commute death sentences 
to life. Joining us now is Alabama's last Democratic governor, though I prefer to say their most recent. That would be Governor Don Siegelman, who, uh, through his own personal experience with prosecutorial misconduct as the victim of an actual political witch hunt by partisan political rivals, at least as I see it, unlike the many that Donald Trump pretends to be facing, uh, and Siegelman's resulted in prison time, well, he may have an insight or two for all of us on this. Governor Siegelman, it has been too long. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Oh, Brad, it's a delight to be with you again, and and thank you for what you do. Um, you know, I, I I thank you for you know boning up and on the issues and uh, finding those these sharp uh, points that that grab people's attention. And you know, I, I commend you and want to encourage you to keep doing it because it's it is making a difference. And and you know, we're talking about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe we won't change uh, a lot of minds, but I I think that. You know, by raising these issues, mm-hmm. we cause people to think, and when they think, hopefully they will conclude that there are some serious flaws in our criminal justice system, which has resulted in not only uh, innocent people being sent to prison, but innocent people being executed as well. That is my hope as well, and I thank you for the kind words. Uh, Governor, you, you and Governor Bentley write... Uh, um uh, uh, go into detail about uh, why both of you are sort of haunted by your actions as governor and your your lack of commuting some of these cases. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, as I mentioned, and I want to focus on some of the reasons you feel that way now. But before we dive into some of those specifics... Uh, and some of the reasons you have taken an interest in this yourself, with everything else going on at the moment, what moved the two of you, yourself and Governor Bentley, to publish this piece now, all of a sudden? Well, it was it was timed, fortuitously timed, to uh, be published mm-hmm. where it would have the most impact on the Alabama legislature, Mm. We had legislation pending which would have uh, removed 146 people from Alabama's death row. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, while the article was published and it's uh, received high acclaim, uh, it did not persuade the Alabama legislature to do Mm. what was morally right and to uh, make the changes in the laws that are needed to to get these people off death row and to stop people from being sentenced under the provisions Mm of Alabama law that harkens back to the 1870s during the Jim Crow era. You, you uh, as a Democrat in a very partisan state, especially now, how did you come to work with a former Republican governor on this issue? Well, I, I drafted this editorial, drafted the, the piece, mm-hmm. and went down and, and spoke with Governor Bentley and we talked about our mutual experiences of, of uh, sitting in our offices, and while you know we get you know an appeal from a uh, from a person on death row that they want consideration for a commutation of sentence, but the the problem the problem that each of us had is that there is no central repository. For all of the evidence and facts of these cases, and many of these cases take 
you know, 20 years or more to, mm-hmm. to bubble up to the surface to the point of execution. Mm-hmm. And what we're presented with as governors is normally whatever was presented in court and what the findings were and what the decisions of the court were, we, we did not and did not have available to us um, the facts that, for example, led me to conclude that mm-hmm. one person who applied for commutation, Freddie Lee Wright, uh, who was executed in 2000, should never have been charged with capital murder in the first place. Mm-hmm. They, he was he was exonerated by a a a jury of eleven to one voted that to acquit him of this of this crime. Then the DA came back and struck blacks from the jury mm. and got a conviction. Mm. More, moreover, the, the district attorney did not report to the to the defense that Freddie Lee Wright was not the first suspect. In fact, the first suspect's gun was ballistically related to the to the murder scene. Mm. So. While Freddie Lee Wright may have been convicted, probably would have been convicted of something, and it may have been murder, but he would never have been convicted of capital murder had the DA played fair. Uh, it later came out that two of the people who testified against him said that they were threatened with the death penalty if they didn't point the finger at this guy. Mm. And, um, you know, there was, but each case is riddled with, with facts that are subdued and withheld uh, so that there is no compilation of, of evidence that's given to a governor at the time they are asked to make these critical decisions. So that was one of the proposals that we mm-hmm. made to the Alabama legislature, and I'm hopeful that they will reconsider in the next session. And that was uh, one of the points you, you discussed in your piece with uh, Governor Bentley, that you were personally haunted by that case 23 years later. Why is it that at the time, uh, you know, you, you could have had a, 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 you had the power to commute his sentence? Why didn't you know these facts at the time that he was wrongfully charged and prosecuted and, and convicted? And, and when... What was it that finally made you, uh, you know, when, when did the case of Freddie Wright begin to haunt you? Well, I got involved in death penalty work here in Alabama about a year and a half ago, and we had uh, had a couple of interns from Georgetown and, and a couple from London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they I asked them to look at the death, the uh, the, the eight people who applied for commutation during the time that I was governor. And to you know, tell me what they could find mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, twenty three years later. So it was only then, uh, maybe six or eight months ago, that I was able to conclude that you know the prosecutors had withheld exculpatory evidence mm-hmm. from the defense. And, uh, but that evidence wasn't available to me while I was governor. And so. Uh, Obviously, that's not the only case. You guys list the uh, uh, the cases of uh, Taforest Johnson, Rocky Myers, and others, and then you talk about 
uh, a number of uh, reasons that this occurs and problems within the system. Grand jury secrecy, you cite as as one of the problems. Uh, I want to ask you about one specific unanimous verdicts. Uh, it wasn't until 2020, incredibly enough, that, as you and, and Bentley explained, quote, the Supreme Court ruled that a unanimous verdict is required to convict someone of a capital crime warranting death. In doing so, the court highlighted the racist underpinnings of non-unanimous verdicts as a Jim Crow practice dating from the 1870s. And as you explain, it turns out that your state, Alabama, had been the only one left to allow a person to be sentenced to death by by this legal relic and even now has 115 people scheduled to die based on non-unanimous jury verdicts. Didn't the U.S. Supreme Court opinion uh, extend when they said that you had to have a, a, a unanimous ver verdict? Didn't it extend to those who were already sentenced to death under non-unanimous juries like the 115 uh, people in Alabama? Well, what what the what the court said? This is the, the, the uh, this is a Trump dominated court in 2020. Mm -hmm. What they said was that you could not be convicted of a capital crime, but they didn't say anything about the sentencing phase. So every other state, as far as I know, except for Florida now, who's joined Alabama in this <clears throat> archaic practice, yep. every other state understood what the Supreme Court was saying and stopped the sentencing people under a non-unanimous jury. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here we are, as you pointed out, in, in 2023, still using a, a method that was devised after the Civil War as a way of thwarting a black juror. The white the, you know, the, the white power structure at the time uh, had, you know, it was a unanimous verdict. Mm -hmm. But they said, no, you know, with blacks being able to be on a jury, we can't risk not being able to put somebody to death when we want to. So mm -hmm. let's go with a non-unanimous jury. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where this this relic of this uh, the Jim Crow era came from. It was it was purely a racist uh, process and. So, you know, it is just it is just wrong, and certainly morally wrong for Alabama or any other state. Now, Florida, as you mentioned, has mm -hmm. even lowered the bar. Alabama has a ten to two verdict. Uh, Florida has an eight to four verdict. Right. Uh, to make it easier to put people to death by this relic of the. Uh, of the 1870s. So, so just so I understand that, so the Supreme Court says that uh, to convict of a capital offense, it has to be unanimous. But when it comes to the sentencing phase of the trial, it doesn't have to be unanimous. It, right. Only yeah, so what? What? What can that makes absolutely no sense. And so every other state in the country picked up on it, except for Alabama, yep. and now joined by Florida. Florida. Eight to four. You can only you only need eight people to put someone to death in uh, in the great state of Florida, uh, which is just unbelievable. Uh, Governor Siegelman, how, how much of your decision uh, at the time uh, back when you were in office to not block this horrible practice when you had the power to do so as governor from uh, 99 to 2003? How much of that had to do with politics now in retrospect, especially in a state with a large 
Republican po- uh, population, surely you knew of the concerns of the inequities of the death penalty uh, even back then, Governor, no? No, no. Uh, you know, it's, uh, Brad, I don't know whether, you know, we, you know whether we're brainwashed from, from the time we're in grammar school or, but, you know, I, until, until I was actually convicted, mm-hmm of something that didn't exist except in the minds of the prosecutors, I thought that our system would somehow or another work itself out and be fair. Mm. But at the moment I heard the word guilty from the foreman of my jury, Mm -hmm. I said a prayer, and it was instantaneous, and, and, and it was more of like a flash asking God to forgive me, because I remembered setting execution dates as Attorney General, and I remembered those that came before me while I was governor asking that their sentences been to be commuted. But it wasn't even then that I realized how perverted our system of justice is. It wasn't until I, I, I you know, I really got involved. It was you know, if in everything there is a purpose, or if in every situation one should find a purpose, it was as if God was telling me, okay, Governor, you see what's wrong, now go fix it. So I started looking at what is, how, how did I get convicted? Well, I went to the, back to the grand jury, where the prosecutors presented false evidence and withheld exculpatory evidence. Mm-hmm. They they twisted the arm of uh, of a young felon mm-hmm. to you know make up you know facts that they presented, knowing that you know one of the witnesses had been interviewed. Scott Pelley dis- uh, uh, exposed this on sixty Minutes. Mm-hmm. One of the wit- the government's key witness had been interviewed over seventy times before they got him to change his story, mm-hmm. and he made him, the government made him rewrite and rewrite his testimony over and over until he got the story the way the prosecutors wanted. I didn't, I did not believe that our system would operate that way. But let me make this point. So, uh, this, during the, the cries, uh, starting with Nixon mm-hmm. in California, <laughs> and the, mm-hmm. and uh, and the and the war on drugs and the war on crime that you know echoed by George Wallace in Alabama and other governors and people around the country, uh, you know, the prosecutors and governors and legislators took with the, this took to this task with zeal. Um, the Supreme Court in 1976 ruled that prosecutors had a free hand to introduce false evidence, false testimony, withhold exculpatory evidence, Mm -hmm. and that they could not be sued. They could not be sued civilly for that. Mm -hmm. To underscore, that was 1976, to underscore just how cavalierly Americans have accepted this notion of prosecutorial misconduct as a way of life. Elena Kagan, during the the, uh, Obama administration, had her deputy argue to the U.S. Supreme Court on January the 4th, 2010, that U.S. citizens, and I quote, U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. Right. That, was, that was in a, a liberal administration of Obama and Elena Kagan. Yeah. 
When, so, when she served as Solicitor General, I think, at the time. Yeah, she was President Obama's lawyer, mm-hmm. and it was reported by David Savage of the Los Angeles. The story was broken by David Savage on January the 5th in the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. So how, how, do we, how do we fix this? Um, we fix it by repealing the immunity that Congress has given to prosecutors in the Federal Tort Claims Act. But we also need to fix the grand jury system. Because in a grand jury where there is no lawyer present for a target or a victim, uh-huh. and I want to come back to this the victim idea, uh-huh. and there's no judge there to oversee the fairness of what prosecutors are doing, prosecutors have free reign to do whatever they want to do. That's why prosecutors get 99% of the indictments they want. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to indicting a white police officer for shooting a black man running from his car because they stopped him for having a, uh, a taillight out, mm-hmm. the, the percentage of holding police accountable drops precipitously. So how do we remedy that? I want to mention two ways. One is extending the, <clears throat> extending the right to counsel to a grand jury. Clearly, a grand jury is a critical stage of a criminal proceeding. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to give somebody a lawyer after they've been indicted. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's good. They need a, need a lawyer. But 97% of the people indicted plead guilty. Mm-hmm. Why? Because prosecutors, Brad, are able to browbeat the, the, uh, the target, mm-hmm. saying... You know, we're going to give you five minutes to agree to this plea. If you don't, we're going to come back and we're going to charge your mother, your brother, your cousins, and everybody mm-hmm. else in this drug conspiracy. So either you plead guilty to this, you know, draconian sentence, or we're going to go after your whole family. Which is so al- they plead, they not, plead guilty. Uh, yeah, well, and which is always it seems strange to me. You can you can't go into the grand jury room with an attorney. Your attorney can wait outside, and if you have any questions. I think, uh, at least under federal law, as I understand it, if you have any questions, you can stop and go out and talk to your lawyer, but you just can't have the lawyer in the room with you. It makes no sense. Uh, Governor, I've just got a few minutes here, and there's one other point, or a couple of other points that I want to hit here from your uh, op-ed in Washington Post with uh, with Republican Governor uh, Robert Bentley. Um, to underscore j- just how much politics bleeds into this matter at the judicial level. And frankly, another reason uh, here that I think judges running for elections is a terrible idea. You write, uh, quote, Alabama was also the last state to ban judicial overrides, a practice whereby judges were able to overrule jury verdicts of life without parole and order death instead. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that sounds to me like one single person getting to decide who lives or dies. The Equal Justice Initiative had raised uh, concern about this practice, finding that the proportion of death sentences imposed by override had often been elevated during election years. Judicial overrides accounted for 7% of death sentences in a non-election year, but rose to 30% when Alabama judges ran for uh, for re-election, which just made me go, uh, wow. Now, if, if that practice has now been banned, uh, has that at least been applied 
to those who are convicted no. and sentenced by a judge overriding the wishes of the jury before no. that part of the law was overridden? No. That's that was <laughs> that's 30, 31 of the 146 people that Governor Bentley and I want off, off death row. 31 of them were sentenced by a judge overruling a jury which had concluded that you know, the mm-hmm. person should live. You know, that's that's the Rocky Myers story that I tell about in the in the op ed. Yeah. You know, this man this man was not connected to the crime scene at all and the jury only had two choices, death or life without parole. So they chose, you know, to give the man life so he'd have a chance to at least develop a relationship with the keep a relationship with his children and mm-hmm. his family. But now Rocky Myers uh, sits on death row, as does Tofaris Johnson, who was convicted of, of murder, but after the trial, it was revealed by the prosecutors that they had paid the witness who testified against Rocky, I mean, against Tofaris Johnson, $5,000 for her testimony. <laughs> so we've got to straighten this stuff out. The first thing, yeah, in the death penalty, that would solve it. But in Alabama, that's not likely. So that's why Governor Bentley and I are appealing to the people of Alabama and to anybody else that's listening to try to help us here in this state to get these 146 people off death row. How, how Have either you or your co-writer here, former Governor Bentley, uh, heard from Alabama's current Republican governor, Kay Ivey, since uh, publishing your piece a week or so at the, at the Washington Post. Do you know if she shares any of these concerns, as, as far as you know? I, I have not spoken with her, and she has not revealed her feelings. Um, there's there's one other point, if we have time, sure. and that is, going back, I said there were two points about the grand jury. One is their secrecy, extending the right to counsel, which would... Uh, you know, I don't. I don't believe that George Zimmerman would walk free from killing Trayvon Martin if mm. Benjamin Crump had been in the in the grand jury. Mm. But the second thing is that most people don't realize, and most lawyers don't realize, that potential grand jurors are not vordired. As, and I'll explain. Vordiring is the process of asking potential jurors whether they can be fair and impartial. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know, for example, in the Breonna Taylor case in Tennessee, whether the grand jurors were related to members on, of the police department, because mm. no one bothered to ask. Mm. So we have we have a hodgepodge of people serving on grand juries who are not even asked whether they can be fair and impartial in their examination of the evidence. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of problems. A lot of problems, obviously, with with and particularly when we're dealing with the death penalty. I mean, this is something that you can't afford to get wrong, uh, and yet we seem to over and over. Your your op ed at the Washington Post begins by noting the 167 people on death row in Alabama, which you describe as quote at least 146 people too many. I would ask. Why is that? And given what you know now, why isn't it 167 people too many? Well, in my mind, it is 167 people too many. But, um, you know, we've got 115 people on death row based on a relic of the Jim Crow era of the 1870s. And we've got 31 people on death row uh, uh, 
based on a practice of judicial overrides that's not even legal in the state of Alabama. So, you know, we it at least the Alabama legislature seemingly could come together and agree that executing people on a practice that came out of 1870 mm-hmm. is wrong, and that executing 31 people for a practice that's not even legal in the state of Alabama uh, is nonsensical, and of course is legally and morally improper. So it is our hope, and it was Governor Bentley's hope and mm-hmm. mine, that we could we could focus on these 146 and convince the legislature uh, to at least get those people off death row. Governor Siegelman, uh, finally, you, you mentioned that uh, it didn't have to do with politics 20 years ago when you were serving as governor, that uh, you just didn't understand, uh, weren't made aware of these concerns. But here we are, you know, 20 whatever years later, 23 years later, there's been a lot of coverage of these issues. Uh, how much of the decision uh, do you get the sense? Uh, decisions by states and, uh, you know, officials who still exercise this barbaric practice as as governor. Um, how much of that do you feel at this point, all these years later, has to be politics as you see it, as opposed to, uh, you know, any heartfelt belief that, you know, we don't make these type of errors uh, repeatedly over the years? Well, you know... I think a, a, a great deal of it uh, in the minds of those people who are running for office mm-hmm. uh, comes down to what is what is the, the view that's most acceptable to a majority of voters. And unfortunately, the death penalty still has uh, some resonance uh, mm-hmm. in, in the minds of voters. But, you know, people of the Christian faith... Uh, and Muslims, and, and you know, I'm sure probably every faith. Uh, you know, when it comes down to life and death issues, most people say, well, you know, it's not my decision, but that's God's decision. So hopefully, at some point, uh, we'll be able to, you know, get ourselves out of this. But, you know, I, I, I believe that things will change. Martin Luther King was fond of saying that the arc of the moral universe is long but bends toward justice but you know we've been waiting a long time for the arc to bend long enough mm-hmm. for congress to pass the john uh the john lewis voting rights act yeah uh, we've been waiting long enough for them to respond to the uh, george floyd murder mm-hmm. by by curtailing the the uh, abuse of power of police so the way we have to deal with this is by working longer and harder to get good people elected to public office so mm-hmm. we can make the changes in the laws and make this country everything we know it can and should be. Governor Don Siegelman, uh, thank you for writing this piece. Thank you for joining uh, with uh, Robert Bentley, go- former Republican governor of Alabama, to do so. And uh, thank you for joining us to discuss it here today. Don Siegelman, as I noted, is the uh, former Democratic governor of Alabama from 1999 to 2003. And his book, if you'd like to get more on uh, just some of the items he was hinting that hinting at from his own outrageous prosecution. Name of his book is called Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor threatens our nation. Governor Siegelman, uh, thank you, as always, for joining us on the broadcast. <laughs> thank you so much.
Have a great day. Thank you, sir. You too. Okay, good to uh, good to catch up with the uh, with the gov there. It's yes. been a while. He is one of the nicest former elected officials <laughs> I have ever met. Uh, well, there uh, there you go. Uh, and I think uh, his book, by the way, we've we, you know we've spoken with him over the years, many times over the years, as his case was developing before he was sent to prison. Yeah. While he was in prison, after he came out, uh, be horrified by that book, "Stealing oh, yes. Our Democracy: How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation." Uh, to learn all sorts of horrors, uh, frankly, from election fraud yep. to, uh, you know, terrible prison conditions. That yep. was, uh, we are, I think, well, one of the last times we had talked, spoken with him, he was talking about uh, COVID and being in prison with people, you know, where you can't. You can't socially social distance, distance at yeah. all. And also his story ropes in Carl Rove, who is a key figure in uh, his political oh, persecution. That's an understatement. Oh, yeah. yes, that's indeed. And I'm glad that he has written this op-ed. It's a really impactful, impactful uh, statement that he ha- and he and, and former Governor Bentley have made about the death penalty. We will, here. of course, link to that at the uh, Washington Post. It is uh, headlined, We Oversaw Executions as Governor. We Regret It. Mm. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks again to the governor, and my thanks, of course, as always, to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated and always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it and every single one of them that we have ever made, that we have ever produced at bradblog.com. By the way, we have been having some problems with our podcast feed mm. on uh, on some of the various apps. I think we have them all fixed. When I say we, I mean I. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I may or may not have done it right. Anyway, I think it's all okay if you missed any shows because of that, you can hopefully download all of them now with the uh, app of your choice. I hope. If you can't, let me know. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Yes, and thank you to those who have uh, sh- have, have written in yep. to say, hey, we've had a problem on this platform or that platform. Yep. Here's the browser I'm using so that we can fix these technical issues. It's very much appreciated. Or so that we can try to. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I've been trying. Uh, what else? Oh, uh, that's it. When you hey, when you stop by the uh, the Brad blog, bradblog.com, please consider hitting one of those donate buttons if you don't mind. We could really use your help right around now. We are 100% listener supported of, over your public airwaves. We could not do it without you. If you've uh, listened to our show every day and you've thought about donating, hey, guess what? Now's a really good time to do that. Bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Thank you very much. All right, that's it. We're out of here. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Follow me on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at the Bradblog, and we will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate.